All right, we're back in Revelation today. If you are just joining us, we have been in, in this book for the whole fall, and we are deep in the book now. And it is a book that is often less traveled because it's a different type of literature. It's not historical, it's not narrative, it's not you know, music, it is apocalyptic. And so in order to get its message across about the reality of things that were, the things that are, and the things that will be, so it's talking about the reality of life, it's using vivid and graphic imagery, stories, symbolism, tying to the works that God has accomplished to help you understand the works that he will accomplish. And so at times it feels a bit foreign. And today can be one of those days as we get into this third cycle of his judgments. Now, whenever we're talking about judgment, we're talking about God's right and fitting response to evil. That's what wrath is. There's wrath that lives in each of us. When we see evil at work, when we see people in positions of power abusing others, when we see others mistreated, when we experience those taking advantage of us, and our response to that evil is that something should be done about that, that that wrong should be righted, those who have been wounded should be healed, that's right and fitting judgments and, and wrath. And God has right and fitting judgments and wrath. And every single person in this room longs for things that are wrong to be made right. And that goes from the, the smallest infraction, like you're driving down the highway and someone just like cuts you off and speeds ahead and you're like, I hope there's a cop up there because <laughs> I want justice to the really deep, serious things of our world of it is so wrong to murder people, to put children to death, to rob people of their human dignity to wage war against races and nations. And, that, and you can start any conversation with, what do, you, what do you think is wrong with the world? And you can list 10, 15, 20, 30 things of what's wrong. And then normally that conversation goes to, well, well who will make it right? And it's human arrogance that think we will make it right, as though we could be the world's judge. For we long for a judge, but not just any judge, because we want to bring our problems to a judge and say, do you see me here? Do you hear me? Do you see the evil that's in our life? And will you do something about it? But every human judge, every human being that tries to insert themselves in being the rescuer of our story has bent judgments, meaning they are in favor of one group or another. There's tears to their judgments. There's perversion in their judgments. There's favoritism in their judgments. They often pad their own pockets or the pockets of their friends in their own judgments. And so our heart, everyone's in this, wor in this world, longs for someone to set this place right, to sort out this mess. We're just not convinced who can do that. See, we write movies, scripts about these things, of justice coming in and setting evil at bay. We write books about these things. We write music about these things. The Psalms are filled with this desire that you have in your heart. Psalm 98 says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Like he's rescued us. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth break forth into joyous song and sing praises. 
Verse 7, let the seas roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Like, let all of creation be animated in thanksgiving to God. Why? The end of Psalm 98. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth to make a decision against evil. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world, though, unlike any other judge. The psalmist says he will judge the world with righteousness, meaning right verdicts. No one gets away. All the evidence is on the table. With righteousness and the peoples with equity. It means his judgments have integrity to them. They're equitable And so the psalmist is crying out this psalm, this music of our hearts, of God, you deserve praise, for you are the one that will judge the earth in righteousness, rightness, and in equity. And Revelation 15 is hearing the cries of the saints, how long, O Lord, until you do something about this? How long, O Lord, until you set this place right? How long, O Lord, until you mend all the wounds and wipe every tear? And Revelation 15 is, is now. I'm doing it now. So Revelation 15. Again, we have John in apocalyptic language describing the realities of the things he saw as God makes the world right. He brings his right and fitting response, his judgments to the evil of the world. Verse 15, John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. It means God's response to evil will be complete, which also means evil itself will be complete. And so the world needs to know that God sees their suffering, he sees your suffering, and he's going to do something about it, and not just to mend it, not to put a Band-Aid on it, but to actually fix it and bring the suffering and evil of the world to an end. And here we see this through the judgments of the bulls. Now, if you're new to the book of Revelation, the framework of Revelation is around three judgment cycles. The first series is seven seals, in which these are the seal judgments. And then we saw another set of seven trumpet judgments. And now we're going to see another set of seven bowl judgments. And though they share many similarities, which have led people to say this is just a recapitulation of what God's doing over and over and over again, they they also have a climactic end to it. And so the first set of seven, which was the seals, well, those judgments impacted a quarter of the earth. And then we saw the trumpet judgments come out, And they impacted a third of the earth. You see it's increasing. And here in the bold judgments, we're going to see that they will affect the entire earth. For in these judgments, the wrath of God and evil is finished. It's over. And so verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations." 
Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So even the song that is singing of his salvation is that you alone, God, are holy. Your judgments are true and right. And so Revelation 15 and 16 is for all of us to know that only God is worthy to judge. For only God is holy, true, and just. He's the only one that can fix this mess. Now, what we see is the imagery here should hyperlink us back to the story of Exodus. It's all going to be Exodus language in which God poured out his judgments on Egypt. Egypt was enslaving his people Israel. They were causing great genocide against the people of Israel, taking their children from their mother and drowning them in the Nile River. And they people cried out, how long, O Lord, until you do something? And God's judgments came through plagues. And these plagues were on Egypt to judge Egypt for their works, to make known who the true God is, and to set the people free to free them from slavery and death and bring them to a land of promise. And so in a greater measure, what we're seeing in the seven bull uh, plagues and judgments is those judgments on the whole earth to judge the world in what it's done, to make known who the living true God is, and to set people free from slavery of sin and death into eternal life, new heavens and earth, a place of promise. And so the very first image we see is that you have a sea here, a sea of glass, and the people of God have already come through it. Remember the story of Exodus? They walked through the Red Sea to the other side, and then the sea consumed Egypt, and the people of God stood on the side of the Red Sea and sang his praises. And here they're on the side of the true sea, singing his praises, though God has already brought them through. His judgments are sure. His promises are certain. They already stand in this victory singing to God that you are the one who is holy, just, and true to make the world right. Verse 5, after, I looked the, after, I, after this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witnesses in heaven was opened. This is another throne room scene in which remember the, the witnesses were by the altar crying out, how long, O Lord? This is Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. How long until you vindicate us, until you share that the story that we shared was true? How long until you show the world? And, and now is the time. Verse 6, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. Their, their dresses of purity. They're untarnished. They bring pure judgments from the throne room of God. They come dressed in, this, in the same clothing that we've seen even Jesus himself dressed in, fine, righteous linens, sashes of gold, speaking of its purity. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The author is going to go to great lengths to note for that you would know that this judgment comes from God. This is not an accident. These aren't just simply natural disasters. This is the hand and work of God against evil. And bowls served a purpose in the worship of Israel inside the tabernacle and the temple. We've also seen the bowls burning incense of the prayers of the saints. God, do something. And here he's answering that. 
And, the, and, sorry, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is, this is bringing the climactic judgments of the world to closure. And the smoke filling the temple, again, is Old Testament imagery of God's presence in the tabernacle, in the temple, his dwelling. And so he is in these actions. Chapter 16, John says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Remember, seven has been a number that we have seen over and over again, meaning completeness and perfection, specifically to the work of God. And so here they are, the seven angels bringing seven plagues of judgment. This is the fullness, completion, and perfection of God's activity against evil. And then it starts listing all of these different angels pouring out these bowls. And similar to the seals and similar to the trumpets, the first four are in its own category, and then the following three are in its own category. But unlike the seals and the trumpets, there's not a pause here between the sixth and the seventh. It's continuous. It's immediate. It's like the pouring out of a bowl. Have you ever spilt a bowl of cereal at the house or a soup bowl? It just goes everywhere immediately. It's not as though he's pouring out his judgments like a capped olive oil bottle, like drip, drip, drip. Here it's poured out over everything, covering everything to bring it to its closure. And so the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores, like the diseases, came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. Last week we looked at these marks. There was the mark of the lamb, of the father and the son. Those who had received the, the grace of Jesus Christ, they were marked out as his people. And those who would not follow Jesus Christ said, we will choose to give our allegiance to your adversary, the one who wants to devour the people of God, who hate the people of God, they too receive a mark. They're marked out in their allegiance. And so everyone in this world is marked out in who they follow. Do they follow the slain lamb? Do they belong to the father? Or do they follow and give their allegiance to God's adversary, described as a beast? It's beastly in how it devours. And, and here's this first judgment on those who were marked out because of their allegiance to the beast. Meaning it doesn't touch the people who are marked out by the lamb. This judgment is not for those who follow Jesus Christ. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers, into the springs of water, and they became like blood. So similar to the trumpet bowls, you have the waters being turned into blood, which parallel the judgments of Israel again. Remember, what was Moses' first plague in Egypt? Was to turn the Nile River into blood. And it was God's judgment on Egypt, saying, you took my children and you murdered them in this river. That's how they killed them. If you want blood, then I will give you blood. I'll give you what you deserve. I'll give you what you've already done. And so in a greater way, you're going to see is that his judgments on those who have slain, who have persecuted and put to death the people of God. Verse 5, And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Again, you're holy, and they're from you. There's no mistaken. 
For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. It's the right and fitting response to the evil they have committed. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments, the one who judges with righteousness and equity. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So first and foremost, you have to understand this scene, is that the people who are experiencing these plagues are not confused that they're coming from God. They know. The one who, who has the power over these plagues, they know that. And they choose not to repent, meaning the right response would be repentance. The right response would be to say, Father, forgive us. God, forgive us. Let us receive your grace to turn from their ways and turn into God. But they refuse to do that, which means you have to to correct an image of God's judgment that's often portrayed in movies. On people, they're like, we didn't know! Give us mercy. And God's like, it's too late. You'll deserve this. Now, what the scriptures teach us is that the only ones receiving the plagues are the ones who know God and have chosen to reject God. There's no one here saying, we want mercy. And God's saying, I'm not giving it to you. God would always give mercy. But it's a people like the hardness of Pharaoh's heart that say, I will not surrender my life to God. I know you're doing this, and I hate you. I don't want your son. I don't want your grace. I don't want your forgiveness. I'm against you till the very end. That's who these judgments are coming on. They know it's from God, and they still choose not to repent, ask for forgiveness, to follow him, for God is surely a God of mercy and grace, and will forgive anyone who asks. Now, what I find so interesting about these these first four plagues is how environmental they are, how ecological they are. They're impacting the real world that you and I live in. And for some reason, we as human beings, when we see pestilence, diseases, pandemics, when we see natural disasters, we're like, we'll fix it. We can overcome this. We're smarter And so we lean into our own medical advancements, our own engineering, our own technology. And I think God's here is like, I'm just going to, I'll just frustrate that so that you know you're not God. I will impact the environment that you live in so that you'll get your eyes on me. The right response when we see these things in our world is to look up. Just look up and say, God, we know that this world is broken in the ways that it should never have been. We know that we live in a cursed world, and we long for it to be made right. And so our eyes are on you, Father, in the midst of all of this. I think he frustrates the very things that we try to control so that we would honor him and recognize him as God. And so he has pestilence, disease, he has disasters, he has this distress of this hot sun, like Global warming is happening, and people refuse to put their eyes on the Creator. And then it takes a shift. The fifth angel, this is verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. 
so severe, people nod their tongues in anguish. And so now God is directly judging the throne room of evil. This is the source of all hate, of all racism, of all death, of all lies, of all deceit, of all abuses. He now judges the throne room of evil and plunges it into this felt darkness. The sixth angel, verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. This is going to be for battle. This is an Old Testament way of talking about the adversaries are coming into the land. Babylon trusted in the Euphrates River to keep its adversaries at bay. They couldn't cross the great Euphrates, and so they had a sense of security until it was dammed up, and, and Cyrus, the Medo-Persian, came in and conquered Babylon. The Euphrates also is the boundary line for the Roman Empire at the time in which this letter was written. And it was their trusted boundary line to keep the Parthians away. And so here, God is using the drying up the Euphrates to describe that kind of a, that wall of protection against God's people will be dried up so that the armies that oppose God can be assembled and advance against the people of God now only to be destroyed. But surely they'll make their best efforts. And so in verse 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, we looked at this last week, and the beast and its prophet. It's not just human evil in the heart, it's demonic. There really is a spiritual darkness that hates the things of God. And we're seeing the reality, it's like coming out of their mouth. This is, this is them out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits, like frogs. Frogs are unclean animals to the Jews. And so these unclean spirits are coming out. It says they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then in verse 15, he speaks directly to those who have ears turned on those who know the reality of things that were, the things that are, the things that will be. The reality of God, he says, behold, I am coming like a thief. Jesus is coming like a thief. He says, blessed, and this is the third time he's saying blessing to a group of people. There's seven blessings in the book of Revelation. You should anticipate that, right? Seven, complete, perfect. This is the third one. Blessed is you in this room who stays awake keeping their garments on that they may not go about naked and be seen exposed. It's like if you know that you are on the front lines of battle, you stay dressed in your uniform. You sleep next to your rifle or your, or your sword. You don't let that just hang out in the room of, uh, across the hall and sit around in your pajamas. He's saying, wake up. You're on the front lines of this. I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who knows these realities so that you have the right thinking about the world that you live in. This is echoed from the words of Jesus himself. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure, this is Matthew 24, verse 42. He says, the last days from his, his coming, from his first to his second, they're like the days of Noah. Meaning that Grace, the means of grace has been provided, and then people are going to keep building things. They're going to keep being married. They're going to keep having families. They're going to keep building communities as though the world's going to continue forever. 
And then he says in verse 42, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You don't know. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the knife the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You don't, you don't expect. Now, how many of you would expect Jesus to return this afternoon? How many would hope that Jesus would return this afternoon? You know? What he's saying is, is live into that expectation. You don't know. And some of us will say, okay, I've, I've read the book of Revelation. We did it as a church. When those terrible things start unfolding, well, then I'll get serious about my faith. Then I'll give myself to Jesus. No, you won't. No, you won't. Today's the day in which you're ready for the Lord's return. Today's the day to be awake, to be dressed in righteousness. His clothing, not ours. His works, not ours. So that we'll be ready whenever he comes. And how's he coming? Like a thief in the night when the world doesn't expect it. The world, friends, is asleep. They think this thing's going on forever and ever, uninterrupted. And Jesus will come like a thief in the night and set all things right. And so this is our blessing. You are blessed, friends, to be aware of this reality, of what the Lord will do. Verse 16, this concludes the remark of drying up the Euphrates. And they assembled them at the place that, is, that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This is the Battle of Armageddon. Now, there's so many images that come to mind with the Battle of Armageddon. We're going to debunk almost all of those as we conclude the book of Revelation. But Armageddon simply means Armageddo, means mountain of Megiddo. The Valley of Megiddo was a famous battle scene for Israel. Many battles had been fought there. Now, what's interesting about Megiddo is there's no mount there. There's no Armageddo. It's just a valley, a plain And so this is probably a description of the mountain which they're gathering around, the forces of those who are adversarial towards God's people, isn't in the place of Megiddo, but this is like a call to the battleground. It's like referring to famous battles that you've heard about. Like this is a a D-Day. This is Pearl Harbor. This is the turning point of the Civil War. You say Gettysburg. This is Armageddo, Armageddon. The time in which there's the final battle, the climax of evil being defeated. For we know that the Lord Jesus Christ will defeat all these armies with the breath of his mouth, it says. And it's over. They gather in vain, but they gather to be judged. Then the seventh angel, verse 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Isn't that what we long for? Like what, what ways in your, in your world are you experiencing the evil of this, of this present day? Like where are you experiencing hardships? Where are you experiencing persecution? Where are you experiencing being cheated, lied to? Where are you experiencing division? Is it not your heart's longing for someday to say, it's done. Like all of that has been removed from my life. And not only my life, but your life. There's no more sickness, no more disease, no more disaster, no more death. It's all finished. If you ever wondered, how does it get finished? Revelation 15 and 16 is telling you. Is it's not the cleverness of humanity 
that will remove this from our world. It's not. We can't be so arrogant to think so. It is the right and fitting judgments of God on this present darkness in which he judges the world for hating the Father, for crucifying the Son, for not caring for his creation. This is his right and fitting response. Now, here's the truth, and you got to hear me. God doesn't want anyone to experience this. He doesn't want any human being to experience the wrath of God. And he has gone to procure every measure so that you will never experience the wrath of God. The only people that will experience the wrath of God are those who want to experience the wrath of God. Hear me say that. The only people that will experience the wrath of God are those who choose to experience the wrath of God. For he has procured the means of grace through his son, Jesus Christ, so that all who would believe in Jesus Christ, that the wrath of God who fell on Jesus Christ would experience the grace of the Father. And so all of this language of judgment through the book of Revelation is slow moving until its climax. This whole language of, of judging the world, of bringing out evil, has been so slow. Like Peter talks about this. Why do you think the Lord is so delayed? Don't think he's delayed, slow in fulfilling his promises. No, he is, what does Peter say? Patient, like a loving parent. He is patient with all of his children, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance, all to come to receive grace in Jesus Christ so that no one would have to experience the wrath of God. He doesn't want any human being to experience the wrath of God. That's why he poured it out on his son, so that we would experience the grace of God. And for those, in this, those of us in this room who have already accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and you read Revelation 15 and 16, it just seems so troubling, like, oh my goodness, the end of the world, so to speak. What will it be like? You have no fear of it. This is what Paul says, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake, meaning alive, or asleep, meaning died, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. So what do we do? We gather in this room to know what the reality of our life is is, what the reality of this world is, and the climactic judgments on this world that are coming. But we have no fear. You, friends, are not the objects of wrath, but of grace through Jesus Christ. And if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, hear me say this. The Lord has no desire for you to taste his wrath. That's why he came and so receive Jesus Christ, who loves you, who died for you, who lives for you. It is through the work of Jesus Christ that we stand secure. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we have hearts of gratitude. We give you thanks that you would intentionally give us scripture that is revelatory to open our eyes and our ears and our minds to know what is truly happening and will happen. And we give you thanks that you will judge evil 
and you will right wrong, and you will mend everything that is bruised and broken, and you will wipe every tear. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use us now as your ambassadors, as witnesses of these things, to tell a sleeping world of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ so that they too might be secure in your grace. For it is finished as you pour out your judgments. Amen.